1: The last thing Gwen Cooper wanted was another cat. She already had two, not to mention a phenomenally underpaying job and a recently broken heart. Then Gwen's veterinarian called with a story about a three-week-old eyeless kitten who'd been abandoned. It was love at first sight. The story of Homer, the eyeless cat, serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Gwen Cooper. Gwen Cooper is a Miami native who spent five years working in nonprofit administration, marketing, and fundraising. She coordinated volunteer activities on behalf of organizations, including Pet Rescue, the Miami Lighthouse for the Blind, the Miami Rescue Mission, and His House Children's Home, and initiated Reading Pen Pals, an elementary school-based literacy program in Miami's Little Haiti. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat. Join us for the next hour as we explore the tale of a blind cat and her companion with Gwen Cooper. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Gwen, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Nice to have you here. Um, So let's go, let's, in the forward to the book, the vet's story. And so it's an interesting story. So, can you tell us that story, that uh, <laughs> Patricia Corley? Cooley?
2: Cooley, yeah, uh, yes, yeah. Doctor Cooley, uh, who's the the vet for the two cats I had already. I was 24 years old, and I already had two cats. I had just broken up with my fiance, and I was staying in a friend's spare bedroom, uh, having moved out of our home together. While I tried to figure things out, I was working nonprofit, which was wonderfully fulfilling work spiritually, but not so much uh, financially, and. Uh, so it was it was I was sort of at a crossroads I guess in my life I was sort of in a somewhat precarious position and I got this phone call from my vet uh, telling me the story about this two-week-old kitten who was blind. Uh, she actually, he had been found as a stray wandering the streets of Miami, and she had, she, he had been brought into her for treatment, and she had had to surgically remove his eyes. At which point, the couple that had brought him in, planning to adopt him, no longer wanted him. They actually felt he should be put to sleep. They felt that there was he wouldn't have a very good life.
1: And he was mewing loudly at the time. Too, yes, he was. He was like really he was in per- pain. Yeah. Uh,
2: well, he was really perfectly healthy except yeah. for for his vision problems, and he was crying so much because he was hungry you know he was two weeks old and they grow so fast at that age but you can imagine a blind two-week-old kitten was not very successful fending for himself food-wise on the streets so she she fed him and and he was happy and comfortable she performed the surgery pro bono basically she at that point was was sort of in love with this she was very young too she was 27
1: once that they decided that they didn't want
2: exactly this couple decided to sign the the kitten over to her care Um, Really, I think thinking she was crazy, but she was this young idealistic vet and she had worked with disabled pets before. So she really felt that that he, because he was so young, would not even know, would not even be aware that he was blind or that he was missing anything. And so she performed the surgery and set about trying to find a home for him. She had a list of people who had specifically indicated that they would be willing to adopt a handicapped cat, but nobody was willing to take this cat with this handicap. And finally, really, as a last resort, because she knew where I was in my life at that point, she called me. And as I like to tell the story, uh, you know, I'm a sucker from way, way back. I I was always the kid that stray dogs and cats followed to school because I would always give them the food out of my lunchbox. And so she called me and she's telling me the story and I was in tears listening to it. But I also had this idea that it was just not the right time for me to adopt a third cat, especially not a cat with, with special needs. And so I said to her, uh, you know, through my tears, like, oh, I'll come in and meet him, but I'm not promising anything. And uh, for those of you out there listening who have adopted rescue pets, of course, you know that once you say, I'll come in and meet him, you've pretty much <laughs> signed on for adopting the pet, and uh, which is basically what happened here. I went in to meet him.
1: Your roommate, Melissa, gave you some support, though, I think, yeah.
2: She did. I was, stay- I was staying with a friend, as I said, and... Um, and you know, after I'd agreed to come and and meet the kitten, really still thinking I was going to say no. And and my my friend Melissa said, uh, you know, well, we have to take him. We we have to let him come and live here. Uh, Melissa was herself sort of a great collector of of strays, which is uh, I think how I ended up uh, sleeping in her spare bedroom in the first place. And. um Certainly having that additional support helped, I think, me reach the decision. Although, I, I will say, it, truly, when I first saw him, it, it was love at first sight. I, I could not have left and left him there. And uh, so, so he set came home the stage. I
1: mean, I know that when you walk, when you got there, uh, the the— the vet came out and then took, said, "Come back here." And you cross. You were passing a whole bunch of cages on the way back. Yes. To this little room. Wow,
2: you really read this detailed description. And, yes, that and, is. Uh, yes, um, you know, I passed all the kennels where they had pets who were who were being boarded there, who were receiving treatment, or for all I know, were were other strays who were looking for homes. And she brought me to an exam room, and and he was in sort of like this this lidless box kind of a thing. And he was so tiny. You know, they're so tiny when they're three weeks old. He was such a little thing. And he just had the surgery for his eyes. So there were stitches um, in his eyelids. And he had one of those big plastic cones around his neck, which was both sad and adorable at the same time. And this teeny tiny kitten with this big giant plastic cone around his neck. And, you know, I always say you, you would think that a, a, such a young kitten who had been through such a rough few weeks... Would would be timid or or hostile or you know. He was just happy. He was in a good mood. I picked him up, and he purred, and and he nuzzled me, and he wasn't over anxious with his affection, nor was he. Did he seem nervous or, or scared about what awful thing might happen to him next? He was just happy and in a good mood, and I, of course, was very young and had been feeling terribly, terribly sorry for myself for all of my own recent misfortunes, and which you know the young are are prone to over dramatize their own sorrows. I think. And I, I was just suddenly very ashamed of myself that, that here was this kitten whose, you know, whose three weeks of life were so much worse than anything I'd gone through. And he was so happy and and joyful and accepting of the world and and people. And uh, it wasn't even just that he was cute or little or that he was helpless and he needed me. You know, he. Uh, I, I wanted to be as good a person as he was, as, as silly as that sounds, because he was a cat. Um, and that was really the moment when I, when I sort of had that epiphany that, that I just, I knew I I had to take him home with me.
1: You didn't take him right home? Uh...
2: No, he had to stay at the vet's office for another week to, to gain a little bit of weight. And also for his, uh, his stitches didn't come out before I brought him home, but she wanted to give him, give them a chance to, you know, to to heal up a little bit.
1: And you would go there every day after work?
2: I went there every day to visit him. So he would get to know me and my smell and the sound of my voice. And uh, and so we can interact and, and I would just watch him. Navigating the, this room that he was in, you know, again he was blind and he was little and he had this cone on, but he was a, this relentless explorer. You know, he did not sit in a corner and cower because he didn't know what was going on. He uh, he wanted to get into everything. He wanted to know what everything was and where everything was. And he was he was this intrepid little explorer right from the beginning.
1: And then when you took him home, what happened? <sighs>
2: Well, when I first took him home, it really was, uh, we, we I, he still had his stitches on, so I kept him separated from my other two cats until the stitches came out. So there was a lot of, uh, I, I think I said in the book, it was sort of like a, a French bedroom farce, you know, because you're, you're, when you're trying to keep the wife and the mistress separated, you know, one bed, one bedroom door closes and the other one opens, and uh, nobody got to be in the same room at the same time. Your the
1: two cats being Scarlet and Vashti. Scarlet
2: and Vashti, yes. Yeah,
1: Vashti. And so tell us about those two cats because— there's relationship here that builds.
2: Yeah, Scarlet and Vashti. Scarlet is, is sort of the grand dame of, uh, of our little feline pack. Uh, Scarlet is one of those cats that people who don't like cats think of, is the way I always describe her. She she can be very surly and very stiff. And uh, it, like I said, I think grand dame really describes it best, although she's so sweet. With me, I I say I always sound like a a girl with an abusive boyfriend when I defend our relationship because I, you don't know what she's like when we're alone together and and you don't know how she really feels about me. (laughs) And uh, just, uh, she's very sweet to me, but not to anyone else. Uh, Vashti. Vashti was, was our beauty queen. She was a beautiful, beautiful cat who had also, she'd been a, a very mangy little stray when I adopted her. And she just grew into this gorgeous adult cat uh, with long white fur and these big, beautiful green eyes and, and such a sweetheart, just the sweetest animal. I think in a lifetime of of working with animals, I think probably the sweetest animal, cat, dog, horse, goat, you know, anything that I've ever encountered. And uh, and very patient Scarlett did not have a lot of patience with Homer initially.
1: Uh, Because Homer, I think, came home—he was had had, a—not Homer, but uh, Vashti had a skin disease and had been uh, coated with—
2: Oh yes! Now that that's right. God, you really did read this. It was so much detail. That's right. When we first adopt, when I first adopted Vashti, poor Vashti, who was she was filth encrusted. Every bit of fur that she had was was caked in mud, and she had these huge bald patches because uh, she had mange and mites, and she was about six weeks old. And uh, so when I took her to the, you know, and, and she wandered into my mother's, my mother taught elementary school in Little Haiti. Um, and Vashti had wandered onto the school campus. And so I brought Vashti from there to my office and then to the vet's office. And they kept her overnight and they gave her a sulfur dip, uh, which turned her white, what there was of her white fur, bright yellow. And she smelled like rotten eggs. But, of course, she was blissfully unaware of any of this. Yes. So, so I bring her home. And uh, she slept overnight in a little nest in the bathroom, so she had her own space, and Scarlett had her own space. And the next morning, I introduced the two of them, and Vashti had had eaten well. She had a full belly. She wasn't itchy anymore, and and she was such a loving case. She was so happy. She had people to love, and here was another cat that she also got to love and play with, and she was this tiny, smelly, yellow little puffball. And she came running out of the bathroom. I always say like a talk show host had just announced her name. And was spinning in, in circles around Scarlett. She couldn't wait to play with Scarlett. And Scarlett, every ounce of dignity that Scarlett had was mortally offended by this tiny, smelly little thing <laughs> that would not leave her alone. <laughs> and... Uh, it was that yeah.
1: She retreated to under the, I think under the she bed. She had right? that's
2: right. She uh, she kind of ran under the bed, under the couch, and and would sort of peek out. And and poor Vashti was just uh, with with so much sweetness of intention, just wanted to play and, and would, you know, kind of wait till Scarlet came out and then descend on her again. And of course, Scarlett was a full grown cat at this point, and Vashti was only six weeks old, so she really was pretty tiny, and Scarlet was a good 13 pounds by then. Um so it really wasn't much of a contest, but but like I said, it's you know, she didn't smell like a cat. She wasn't acting like a cat or at least not the way Scarlet I think felt a cat should act, yes. and uh, I think it was a combination of not liking a newcomer and also feeling just have some dignity for God's sake. But <laughs> Scarlett is very dignified; she's a very dignified lady. So
1: here comes mommy home with a carrying a, a carry, a car, car, carry litter, yes. carry carry box. Yes, and
2: uh, so. I, yes. When I came home with Homer, I, I just this, the look that Scarlet gave me was like, oh, not another one. Um, and you know, with Homer too, because Homer is also very, very friendly and very rambunctious in a different way. From Homer Foster. was quiet
1: all the way home in the car. It was like-
2: he was, and uh, and I wasn't sure. You know, the other two hated being in their carriers, and they they always cried. And I still don't really know to this day if Homer was just you know sleepy, if the motion of the car kind of lulled him. Or if he just really, you know, he might not have even remembered his first trip to the vet's office. So he might not have even really had an understanding of, of what was happening, you know, why he was suddenly in a box and then in a, in a vehicle that was moving. Uh, but he was very quiet and I was a little concerned, but uh, he perked right up when we got him home. And, uh, yeah.
1: So I'm speaking with Gwen Cooper. She's the author of Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, GwenCooper.com. That's GwenCooper.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. My name is Michael Thompson, and you're listening to New Dimensions. This is Gwen Cooper, and we're talking about Homer. She's the author of Homer's Odyssey. Gwen, so one of the things uh, that happened was when you started when you started to write this book. How are you going to write it? And and uh, your husband Lawrence, he su- suggests, well, this was a typical man and dog story. Although it's not a man and a dog; it's a woman and a cat. Right. So let's talk about that.
2: Yeah, you know, I, like I said, my husband really summarized it best. He, he said it's it's a classic boy and his dog story, and and by that he he meant those wonderful tales about human animal relationships that. Uh, are about the the action, you know. There, there's action and adventure, and, and there's always a sense of a journey, both the physical one and also the emotional one. I always actually say that ET I think is the greatest boy in his dog story. Uh, although ET is obviously not a dog, but you know there there's a there's a wonderful story about an interspecies relationship. There, and it's also really a story about about a growth into adulthood and. About the way that it, a single transformational relationship can can change the entire course of of your life, and and that was once I, I sort of had that idea in my mind, I I had a clear idea of how the story should flow for this book.
1: And so, you, again, again, where the name came, there was also how to name the cat. Yes, too. So let, let's talk about that. What what. Brought you to name Homer Homer.
2: Yes, I uh, I, I was always a fan of, of Greek mythology, uh, always a, a big lover of mythology in general, but Greek mythology was probably my earliest love among mythology. And I originally actually was going to name Homer Oedipus. Uh, and I thought it'd be, you know, because Oedipus, of course, in the myth, actually lost his eyes altogether. And I figured I would call him Eddie for short. And I thought that would be sort of cute. And uh, my roommate, Melissa, thought that that was a mean name for him. And, and I suppose that, you know, naming a cat Oedipus is, is perhaps a lot of baggage to, to hang him with. Um, so I was, you know, I was trying to think of of what his name should be, and I really wanted to give him a name that, that was the right name and was the name that he would deserve. And and as I said, he was always such a, from the beginning, such an intrepid explorer. And, and I had the sense early on that his life was going to be a, a voyage. You know, his life had already begun the way that the best stories do. There were already so many obstacles that he had overcome. It was It was a million to one shot that he was even alive, that he had found a home. And yet, by the same token, I I used to watch him trying to figure things out that he couldn't see. So it wasn't just that his life was a story. I always I, I also had this idea that that he was making up stories, you know, trying to figure out what what a chair was and and why things sometimes were in one place and that you know why an umbrella that was in one place one day was not there the next day. And um, and so I. It occurred to me that that the greek poet homer who who wrote those wonderful who wrote the odyssey and the Iliad and those wonderful wonderful adventure stories and who had seen an entire epic adventure in his head even though he was blind was was really who Homer the cat uh, my kitten was was taking after seemed destined to take after and and so that was how I came by the name Homer
1: and uh, <clears throat> one of the uh, in the in the um also, the, the aspect of that begin, how the book began, began with a breakup and ended with a wedding. Uh,
2: Well, that was a, yes, that, that I really, you know, I first had the idea to write the book and I wasn't really sure how the story should flow. I I sort of knew where the beginning was because obviously there, there was a day when I adopted Homer and brought him home, but I didn't really know what the natural endpoint would be. Homer is still alive. I I should say uh, for, for those of you out there who are afraid to read a story about a, where you have to live through the tragic death of the beloved pet at the end of the story. Homer is still alive and well. And so the question was, well, what is the natural endpoint for the story? And it was as I was planning my wedding to my husband, this was about two years ago, where I realized that th- this was a story began with a breakup and it ended with a wedding. And the story of the book was, was about this transformational relationship that that took me from the person who I had been 12 years earlier when I adopted this cat to the woman who was now marrying my husband and and so that really provided me with with sort of the narrative milestone, you know, the, the narrative uh, goalposts, I guess you would say.
1: So Gwen Homer was uh, quiet all the way home, and and you brought him in, and so what happened then?
2: Well, when I first brought him in, really what, what I wanted to do, like I said, I, I kept him separated from the other two cats for a few days while his stitches were still in. And so my, the main concern I had was whether or not he would be able to become acclimated, if he would be able to find his litter box and and to know what that was for and, and food and water and, and all the things that you would be concerned about a blind kitten or a blind cat being able to figure out. And so when I brought him home, the first thing I did when I took him out of the carrier was I put him into the litter box, uh, both thinking he might need to use it, but also so that as he started to walk around and explore, he would remember in a way that made sense for him where the litter box was in relation to other things in the, in our home. And I, I confined him to our, you know, to my bedroom and bathroom initially, so it was a smaller space for him to get used to. And and I have to say, you know, he he figured it out right away. He used the litter box, and when he needed to use it later, he he went right back there. But he really, uh, and and this is still the way he figures out a new space. He just kind of walks around, and uh, he he touches things with his paws. He he gets a sense. Uh, he he sort of brushes against walls and. Really gets a sense of where door openings are and where solid objects like furniture and things like that are. And he memorizes remarkably quickly. You would never think, once you've seen him walk around a room once, um, you would never think that he was blind to see him getting around. Actually, now when I put him in a new space, he doesn't bump into anything at all. But even as a kitten, he would maybe bump into something once, and and then he would know something was there. And he always remembered where his litter box was and and his food and water. And so I I spent a lot of time initially that first day orienting him and and getting him used to where those things were. And it was really almost the last time I ever had to do that for him, even though we moved a number of times.
1: So when you brought him into the rest of the house, then then what happened? (laughs)
2: Yes, I. Uh, when I introduced him to the other two cats, it was uh, he and Scarlet have a very interesting relationship. I always say it's sort of a, a wily e. coyote roadrunner type of relationship. <laughs> Uh, Homer is a typical little brother. He loves bothering his big sisters. He loves bothering Scarlett because Scarlett gets very irritated with him. And he loves to chase her. And And I really think when he was a kitten, part of how he learned to run and climb and explore and, and attempt some of the things he attempted is that Scarlett was always climbing and jumping onto things to get away from him. And so he learned to make those same climbs and make those same jumps um, the the way that little kids do learn from their older siblings. and And so I think... In pursuit of Scarlet, he really learned to test his limits in a way that he might not have otherwise. Scarlet, I, I think, just thought he was uh, kind of a kind of an idiot. I always say because uh, you know he used to love to to try to to pounce on her and sneak up on her, but he he of course is unaware that there is such a thing as vision. He thinks that if he's quiet. That he's invisible, so he always tries to sneak up on her very silently, but directly from the front. So she she can she's watching him sneak up on her, <laughs> and uh, and just looking at him like, why are you trying this again? It never works. And uh, and and you know, I I just know to this day he's confused as to how she always knows, how she always figures out no matter how quiet he is when he's coming, and uh, he still has not given up. It's thirteen years later, and and he's still trying to to take Scarlett by surprise. So they have a very, like I said, sibling-like relationship. But uh, but they, you know, when they're sleepy, they, they curl up and they nap together. Uh, you really can usually, when they're resting, you can almost always find one where the other one is. And uh, I, I think it's it's one of those things where Scarlett would never want you to know that that she likes Homer at all. But I think she has a grudging little soft spot in in her heart for him. Although that certainly had to develop over time.
1: And Vashti, how does Vashti
2: Vashti, uh, you know, Vashti just loved everybody. Vashti was, uh, Vashti was never as much fun for Homer because Vashti, Vashti was a very patient cat. And... So Homer, you know Homer, like I said, he liked to, you know, he didn't like to play little silly girly games. He liked to jump on the other cats and pounce on them and and wrestle around with them. And Scarlet would always put up a fight, but Vashti never did. Uh, Vashti, you know, if Homer jumped on Vashti, Vashti would just sort of let him in and and maybe very gently, eventually, kind of try to turn him away. Vashti never unsheathed her claws or or hissed or or growled or bit it bit anybody. And uh, so she was much more easygoing with Homer and much gentler with him. But uh, I, I think that's almost, like I said, like he liked Scarlet better. She was a worthier adversary. She put up more of a fight.
1: When I first uh, uh, got the, the book and first opened the book, I happened to open it to the burglar story. Okay. And uh, in the opening, in the introduction of the book, you mentioned the burglar story it is an extraordinary story. So, can you tell us the the burglar story? Yes,
2: the burglar story. Um, this was the summer. It got ten years ago. This was the summer of two thousand. We had just a few months earlier. This was. We were still living in Miami, in Miami Beach. We had just moved into a new apartment a few months earlier, and I woke up at about four thirty in the morning to a strange sound, and it, the, the sound it was of Homer growling. And I should back up right here and say that Homer is an exceptionally friendly cat. He's a very dog-like cat. He greets everybody who comes into our home. He loves to play. He's everybody's friend. And so I had never heard him growl, but I knew, in, you know, I, I had heard Scarlet growl and it wasn't her and Vashti just didn't, w- would never have growled at anybody. And so it was the kind of thing where it was already scary just because Homer was growling and what would make Homer growl. Uh, and I also couldn't see him, you know, Homer's all black and he has no eyes. So in the dark, he is truly invisible in a dark room. So I reached over to, to turn on the lamp next to my bed. And standing at, in my bedroom at the foot of my bed was a man I had never seen before in my life.
1: Scary moment. <laughs>
2: It is probably the single most terrifying moment of my life. It, it's so terrifying that your mind can, for, you know, a full, a good 10 seconds does not want to accept that it's really happening and is really just trying to account for, okay, well, this must be my new boyfriend, or, or obviously I have a friend staying in town, or this must be a neighbor who just wandered into my apartment somehow. And it was, of course, none of those things. And... You know, the thing with Homer is that because he's blind, we always had a very specific way when people came into the home that I would introduce him to people so that nothing would startle him. So he would, you know, so he would understand that people coming into the home were his friends, too. So I think that might have been part of what was so upsetting for Homer. You know, Homer, like a blind person, it's it's all about routines and habits and things being in the same place all the time and happening the same way and you know people did not just come into my bedroom at 4:30 in the morning having not been greeted by me or me you know with me not answering the door and i think you know people say why why was he what 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 was it that you think made homer so alarmed and and i think that was the first thing that set him off so homer's growling and and i've turned on the lamp and and now i can see the burglar and the burglar is looking at homer and with sort of a vaguely terrified look on his face Which for a second again threw me because I'm thinking, oh come on, you broke into my apartment. What do you look scared for? But uh, of course, he's looking at this black eyeless cat on my bed, and and I'm sure he was thinking like, what kind of a crazy freaky apartment did I break into? If she did that to the cat, what's she gonna do to me? Um, and and so and and Homer is becoming more aggressive with each second that's going by, and and I reach for the phone next to the bed to call nine one one. At which point that the burglar said, don't do that. And, and I hesitated for a second, um, but then continued to, to pick up the, you know, I, I sort of uh, took inspiration from Homer who was acting, you know, Homer's a tiny cat. He only weighs about four pounds. He's a very little thing, but he was acting, he was all puffed up and, and his claws were out and he was growling and he was acting very big and aggressive the way cats do when they're trying to warn somebody off. And so I said, all right, I'm just gonna act bigger than I really am. And I, uh, I told the guy to bleep off. And uh, I made the call, but Homer at that point, you know, Homer pinpoints things based on sound. Basically, he knows where things are based on how they sound. And we're so, we're going
1: to continue the story oh, just okay. a moment, leave people hanging for that okay. story. So, <laughs> I'm speaking with Gwen Cooper. She's the author of Homer's Odyssey, and my name is Michael Thompson. You're listening to New Dimensions. <laughs> Speaking with Gwen Cooper. She's the author of Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat. Gwen. Let's continue the story.
2: Sure. Uh, as I was saying, you know, there's a lot that, that Homer did not know in the situation about the, this man in the apartment. Uh, Homer, I, I'm not sure if Homer has an idea of relative size, if he knows how much smaller he is than than most other living things. And, and certainly uh, than this man who is standing in the bedroom. But but Homer's uh, other senses, his hearing and his sense of smell uh, in particular, are remarkably acute, uh, remarkably acute. He he catches buzzing flies in, in midair just based on being able to hear where they are. And so as soon as the man spoke, as soon as you know, I picked up the phone, the man told me uh, to call 911, the man said, don't do that. And, and Homer, who had been getting progressively more agitated, I think because I was awake, but I wasn't talking to him, I wasn't reassuring him. I, I think his sense that something was wrong was growing. And as soon as the man spoke, Homer knew exactly where he was. And Homer leapt at the man's face. You scratch it, attacked him with his claws and, and just barely missed. And, and only because the man had sort of reflexively snapped his head back. And at that point, um, and I was on the phone with 911 while Homer is, is attacking this man with his claws. And at that point, I think the burglar decided to cut his losses. And, and so he turned and ran. And Homer jumped off the bed and ran after him. (laughs) So, and I'm on the phone with 911 who's telling me to stay on the phone until the police get there, but I, of course, cannot let Homer run out of my apartment because he's blind, and and I, I don't know that I would have let a sighted cat just run out of my apartment that way. But certainly, I, I couldn't let a blind cat run out because how do I know that he'll be able to find his way back?
1: Here you are running down the street after Homer, well, Homer's running a, after the
2: cat. Exactly, the cat's it's running a, after
1: the burglar.
2: Right. We we you know we were in this long labyrinthine corridor in my apartment building, and and, and yeah. so you know all I'd wanted was this burglar to leave, and now I'm at the end of a parade. You know that the burglar is leading, and so the burglar's running, and the cat is running. After after the burglar and I'm running after the cat, and uh, the the burglar gets into the the exit stairwell and and gets away, and and I picked Homer up, who really was spoiling for a fight. He was struggling with me and you know flailing out his claws and hissing and spitting and uh, and uh, and and I was of course very I, I was terrified by the whole thing. You know I was terrified of this man in my apartment. I was terrified of Homer running out. I was terrified of what would happen if Homer caught the guy or if Homer got away and. Um, and so I'm afraid when I when we got back to the apartment, I, I yelled at him a little bit uh, out of fear, and you know it's it's sort of that anger that comes from being afraid. Uh, but but we did make up eventually, and um, and as I always say, you know it was uh, once upon a time I, I saved Homer's life, and and many years later he returned the favor.
1: The police arrived, shortly. The
2: police arrived. This whole, the, the whole story, you know, it's interesting. It's a chapter in the book. But the events in the chapter really unfolded over, I would say, a time span of about 30 seconds. From the time I turned on my light to when the police arrived at the door was about 30 seconds. And uh, 30, 45 seconds at the most. And um, so the police came shortly thereafter. They, they never caught the burglar. I don't know. Considering nobody had been hurt or nothing was really taken, I don't know how vigorously they— investigated the matter. They did have me come back, come down and look through a book of mugshots to see if I could identify anybody, although my memory at that point was you know, it was it was so fast and so startling I would have hated to implicate anybody yes. based on my hazy memory yes. from that night. Yes.
1: So at this time you were living you were living where?
2: I was living in Miami Beach mm-hmm. at that point.
1: So South Miami.
2: South Beach, yeah.
1: Yeah. South Beach. And so um I'm wondering just relative to how Homer uh, changed your attitudes and feelings about love
2: well, that you know that was more of a of a gradual evolution, I would say, although i I think that that some of the things some of the most important things that I learned from Homer is certainly that that with no risk, there is no reward that that some of that sometimes you have to make that blind leap of faith to to get the things that are truly worth having in life, and and to get the relationships that are worth having. I, I think you know what certainly what I learned from Homer is is that the sometimes the relationships that are the least expected are the ones that are the most fulfilling. You know, Homer Homer was not supposed to be my cat. I was not going to adopt a third cat. I, I knew that I was not going to adopt a third cat, and yet Homer. Was so worthwhile, was so worth having in my life, and I knew that from the moment I met him. That all my conventional wisdom on the matter had to go out the window. You know, my husband and I were were very good friends for years before we we became romantically involved. And um, and and as I always say, you know, if there were two things I knew, I knew that I was not going to adopt a third cat, and and I knew that Lawrence and I were just going to be, we were destined to be friends for the rest of our lives. And, uh, and and of course here I am now, uh, all these years later. And and Lawrence is is my husband and the greatest husband in the world. And and Homer, I, if I may say so, I think is the greatest cat in the world. Uh, but these are two relationships that I never planned on, and that I was pretty sure I was not going to have in my life. And 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 that, yeah, that were the most surprising, and yet became the most meaningful. And and so you have to just sometimes, like I said, know when when it's worth taking that blind leap. Of faith into the unknown, into the surprising, into the unexpected.
1: Homer helped you do that. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, at some point, um, you made the decision to leave South Miami to and, leave. Yes. And to relocate to, to New York. New York. Yes. That had to be a big deal.
2: It was. You know, the imme- the immediately precipitating factor was uh, was it was uh, early two thousand and one, and. There were already it had been a very flush job market for a few years preceding that, and and as of course everybody knows, 2001, uh, we saw some hard times, and and they were starting early in 2001, so it was easier for me to find work in New York than there was in Miami. Although I had always wanted to move to New York, and again, I I sort of uh, I was approaching my 30th birthday, and uh, it, it was always a risk that seemed a little intimidating to me moving to New York on my own, especially because I was, I was a Miami native. I'd lived there my whole life. My whole family was there. And like, you know, like I said, it was one day I, I just decided that uh, I, I really needed to sort of make that that leap into the, the, that blind leap into the unknown. And I did so. And I moved to New York in February of 2001.
1: It's a very interesting time to move to New York.
2: Yes, I, I actually, I moved to New York in February, 2001. I had a, a, I found a job in the financial district. It was located uh, five blocks away from the World Trade Center. And I found an apartment that was located only two blocks from my job. So it was about three blocks away from the World Trade Center. So in February of 2001, I moved into an apartment about three blocks from the World Trade Center, which I found very quickly and easily because I had a friend who lived in the building. And I just thought I was the luckiest person in the world. Uh, You know, I'd heard all these terrifying things about finding an apartment in New York and who was Luckier than I was because I found this great apartment near the World Trade Center uh, with hardly any trouble at all, and it was a great nine months or so <laughs> until uh, until it wasn't.
1: So, tell me the, about the cats. About moving the cats.
2: Uh, well, it was uh, moving the cats from Miami to New York was an interesting experience. Uh, I, I flew there. I, I had you know movers take everything up, and I flew with the cats, and and I didn't wanna check the cats as baggage. Uh, so I, I got two. The, the rule on the airline was you could have two cats per cabin uh, and each cat, four cats per plane. And each cat had to travel with a ticketed passenger. So I recruited two friends who had friends or family in New York themselves. And I offered to fly them to New York. And the deal was that they each had to tra- you know, travel with one of my cats. And so we went, I flew with Homer, Scarlett and Vashti Flew with my friends and uh, Scarlett and Vashti. I I gave a sort of a a, a tranquilizer to, and they took it and they were very relaxed and very mellow throughout the flight. Homer was very difficult. He would not take the tranquilizer, uh, which I respected. Mm But it was a it was a miserable flight for for all concerned. You know, his ears are so sensitive, and and they must have been. Yeah, he he just had no idea. You know, this engine is thrumming, and and you're flying, and and you know, climbing. I mean, just this whole physical experience he wasn't used to. You know, ears popping, and his ears were so sensitive to begin with, and he was just so miserable on the plane flight and cried and cried and cried, and uh, much to the consternation of my fellow passengers. And uh, there was just nothing I could do to comfort him, which just made me feel so wretched. Uh, I, I'm grateful, looking back on it, that I had not decided to move to L.A., for example, which would have been a much longer flight than yes. flying from Miami to New York. So it was. Uh, it, it was it, it, there, there's a whole chapter in the book, actually, that describes that, that day of moving from the time the movers came to take the furniture, which was yes. the first thing that unnerved Homer until we landed in New York. And uh, it was quite a grueling day. And Homer's never been on a plane since... That day, I think, which is best for, for all concerned.
1: So then moving into the new place, and how did that go? It,
2: it was fun. You know, I, I moved into a studio apartment and... Uh, and it was a large studio, certainly by New York standards, but it was a studio apartment. And Homer was not used to there only being one room. You know, I think he kept kind of trying to find doorways at first, sort of walking around, hugging the walls. It was very confusing for him that there was only one room. He, uh, we, His first nemesis also was the, uh, the original heater in my apartment. I, actually, it was a very nice building, but for some reason, the heating unit in my apartment was very old and it was replaced eventually. But for the first few days, it clanged and buzzed and clattered. And, uh, you know, of course the cats had never lived in a cold climate and knew nothing about heaters at all. And, uh, and Homer used to just get in horrible fights with the heater. You know, it would make these horrible noises and he would hiss at it and growl at it and he'd run at it and he kind of hit it with his claws. And, and I think he thought he was protecting me and he'd run and stand in front of me and, and growl at the heater uh, this went on for a few days before we could have it replaced. So that was sort of Homer's first New York nemesis was was that heater. But yeah. uh, but we all settled in eventually. And actually, uh, everyone, I think, got to like the, the change of seasons, especially Vashti, who was sort of a, a, a snow cat. She really liked going out on our balcony in the snow.
1: Now, you couldn't let Homer out on the balcony.
2: Homer does not go out on the balcony. Um, I, you know, unless it's... It, Things have to be screened in. I, I could never let Homer out on a balcony, certainly not in a high rise building, because of course he has no idea that, that a balcony ends and he, he can't look down and see that he has many, many stories above the ground. Um, so Homer Homer does not get to go out on the balcony, which has always meant that I've limited the time that the other two cats spend on the balcony too, because I, I don't want Homer to feel too unfairly treated. He obviously would have no idea. He has no idea why he's different than the other cats. So he does not spend time on the balcony unless I am there to very, very closely supervise. And even then, it just makes me nervous.
1: So uh, we're coming up on uh,
2: 9-11. Yes. Yeah, yeah I was uh, I was in my apartment when the, the planes hit the towers. You know, again, my apartment was three blocks away, but I, I didn't know what, what it was. I didn't know until I got to my office and I, I ended up uh, they evacuated my office building, and I went with Co with a coworker into Brooklyn. we We certainly had no idea that the towers were going to collapse. We it was a very unsettling day, and um, I think we had an idea that the towers would burn, and then the fires would be put out, and everybody would return home and It was while I was on the Brooklyn Bridge with my coworker that the towers collapsed and And at that point, I was unable to return to the cats. It it actually took me nearly four days, four excruciating days to to get back to them. And, you know, the thought that I kept having in my mind was that some debris from the collapsing towers would would have hit a window or broken a window in my apartment. And and I lived on the 31st floor. And again, that that Homer would have no idea that he was so high up or that he should not walk out that that open window window. It was was a terrifying time, obviously, for all of us.
1: We're going to continue this in just a moment. I'm speaking with Gwen Cooper. She's the author of Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, GwenCooper.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Speaking with Gwen Cooper, the author of Homer's Odyssey, and Gwen, we were talking about 9/11. Uh, you want to continue with the story?
2: Yes. Uh, you know, I ended up in Brooklyn, on the other side, on the far side of the Brooklyn Bridge, after the towers fell, and the neighborhood in which I was living it was essentially shut down by the military. My concern, of course, was getting back to my cats, uh, both because of my fear of broken windows and also because, while well, I left them with some food and water that morning. You know that among the many hazards that were inherent in that area, there's also the thought that you don't want them to run out of food and water and litter. And and as I said, it took me about four days to get back. Uh, the first couple of days, they just were not letting anybody into the area at all. I, I was on foot. You know, I, I I had walked from my office in Manhattan to Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, which and those of you who know New York geography know that's about a ten mile walk. And uh, from Bay Ridge, which is where I stayed with a friend overnight. I acquired all these supplies, uh, cat food and and litter and water and all kinds of things. Uh, There was no electricity or water in in my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I, I went as far as public transportation would take me. And then I got out on foot and I tried to walk into the area near Ground Zero. And basically, they had shut down Manhattan below 14th Street, essentially. And uh, and I was trying, kept trying to find a street or something that wasn't blocked off where I could sort of slip in unnoticed. And they, the, the military was just set up everywhere, guarding everything, and I could not do it. Uh, I-, I saw a-, a group of journalists go go th- get waved through, so I even tried pretending <laughs> that I was a journalist too, which uh, did not get me very far. And so that was the first couple of days, and then uh, the third day, I was in touch with the ASPCA and PETA. And at a friend's suggestion, I called them and they were organizing a relief effort for a, a rescue effort for, for pets that were trapped near Ground Zero. And they were bringing owners in uh, to, to different neighborhoods. And so I, I went down to Chelsea Piers, uh, which is on the near the West Side Highway in New York. And I was waiting there for hours for them to, to sort of get to me. There were hundreds and hundreds of other pet owners who had also been trapped away from their pets or whose pets were trapped near Ground Zero. And after a few hours of waiting, I, I decided just to try it on my own again. And I, I finally, finally found. I walked for miles from uh, Chelsea Piers uh, down towards my own neighborhood, and I found a barricade that was being manned by New York, you know, NYPD cops instead of the military. And at that point, they were letting residents in, but you needed to have ID that proved that you lived there. I had never bothered changing my driver's license over because I didn't drive in New York. It just didn't seem yes. like it was necessary. And so all I had was a Florida driver's license. And I was begging and pleading into, you know, this is the fourth day already. And, and as far as I know, my cats have already died of dehydration. You know, I, I have no idea how long they can... How long this is gonna last? And uh, and that was really when I lost it. I just started crying hysterically, and and the cops took pity on me, basically, and and let me through. You know, cops are different than soldiers. Cops in New York, cops, they're like, oh, this this five foot two girl is you know carrying kitty litter and and bottled water and cat food is not coming in to to hurt anybody, and so they let me in, and I walked. I mean, from where I walked. It was about five miles from Chelsea Pierce to, to my apartment, and I was walking. I had about 30 pounds worth of stuff. A lot of exercise. I was, I was in phenomenal shape when it was over. And then I first got to my apartment. I had to walk up 31 flights of stairs <laughs> <laughs> to, to get to my cats. Um you know, I finally had, like I said, and, and it was so eerie in my neighborhood. There was nothing moving. There was nobody. There was absolutely nobody. I, to this day, have never been on a New York street that was so completely silent. There were no cars, no people, no birds and trees. Everything was covered with ash and soot. And it you it really did feel like the end of the world. And... um I made it back to my apartment and up 31 flights of stairs, you know, carrying all this stuff. And, and it was an interior stairwell, you know, in, in cement. So there were no windows. So I had this like flashlight that keeps blinking out. And, uh, and I kept having to stop to catch my breath. And I was sort of hating myself for it because I had already made it all this way. But I finally got up to to the apartment and uh, and the cat's respond, you know reaction to me and and I got in they they had you know there was no food, there was no water. the litter box was was filthy and and the cat's re- reaction to me was was very typical of of each of them. Scarlet just gave me such a filthy look like, oh, thanks for remembering you have cats we 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 appreciate your checking in four days later. Uh, she was so mad at me, and uh, and Vashti was very sweet, but but Homer, who was just pacing, I remember he was just pacing up and down in front of the windows, none of which, thank thank God, had been broken. And as soon as he heard the key in the lock, and and his ears perked up, and and I said his name, and he just bounded across the room and and threw himself at my chest, and uh, and it was quite a happy reunion. And I was uh, yeah I was able to get them food and water, and in the end we were very lucky as as. Horrible as those few days were. We were so much luckier than than so many others. Um, but it was, uh, it was certainly a grueling few days, to say the least.
1: Yes, I'm sure it was. So there was a point where um, Lawrence had been left behind in Florida, yes?
2: No, Lawrence actually Lawrence? met in New York. That was before September 11th. Yes. Uh, but I didn't see him. We met at a at a mutual friend's birthday party, and struck up a conversation. and And it was a great conversation. But Lawrence had a girlfriend at that time, and uh, and and so and it was months before I I sort of caught up with him again. Then what happened? Uh, it- what did happen? We we you know again we we from time to time we run into each other because we we had these mutual friends and and the wedding festivities were starting to kick in so we saw each other at rehearsal dinners and, you know, the wedding itself and and other kind of group events. You but know, there was about what,
1: what the cats were? What are the cats doing when this was happening?
2: Well, the, the cats at this point, you know, the, the cats there was the, there were the cats and me living that life and and then there was the you know me seeing Lawrence from time to time. And then eventually Lawrence broke up with his girlfriend. And, and at that point, we were sort of friends and, and we became very good friends. And New York is the kind of town where you don't necessarily, your friends don't necessarily come to hang out at your apartment. It's almost always easier to meet wherever you're going to be going. And yeah. especially when you live in a studio apartment. Studio apartments are not necessarily the comfortable hangout apartments. Uh, Lawrence actually lives, uh, lives, lives still with me, but at the time, his, uh, his, that was just his apartment, it's a three bedroom apartment, much more comfortable for people to hang out of mine was a studio and I didn't have a lot yes. of people over. So the cats didn't really know Lawrence and Lawrence didn't really know the cats. And Lawrence and I, at this point were building up a very close friendship. Uh, he really, uh, it, it evolved to the point where I was talking this and this went on for years. we was talking to him every day. I saw him a couple of times a week. We, uh, we were really, uh, you know, he, I told him about guys that I was dating. He, he would from time to time mention his love life to me. And, um, and Lawrence knew that I had cats. Uh, with the cats, I don't think knew that I had a Lawrence. <laughs> um, and and so there was really no relationship between them until until the day that that Lawrence and I realized that that we were more than friends, or, or really that that I realized that that this had been happening all along. Uh, Lawrence actually started dating somebody else, kind of seriously. And, and I had this, that, uh, that, this awful epiphany that, that I was in love with Lawrence and, and it was, you uh, it was classic. It was, I was insanely jealous, but, uh, and it took me a month to say anything because I really wanted to be sure that I was not, that I was doing it for the right reasons and that I wasn't just trying to break him up with his girlfriend. I, I really thought that I was, I was kind of a bad person. Uh, i was like you're just jealous cuz he has a girlfriend and he's not paying as much attention to you anymore and it was a good month of of not eating and not sleeping and i was sort of haggard and i think i'd aged about 10 years by the end of it um and then I was really scared, too, because, you know, what if I tell him I love him and he says, that's nice, uh, good for you. Fai con Dios. And I also realized that if I called Lawrence and told him how I felt, and if he said he felt the same way, that you're not best friends with somebody for years and then get into a romantic relationship and you and you date. If I made that phone call, I was potentially making a phone call that was going to change my life. Yes. Uh, it's it's sort of an automatically serious relationship. and And so... either prospect is terrifying, you know, being told that the feelings are not reciprocated or even being told that they are is, is equally intimidating. And, 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 but I, I really, at at that point, I think because of my relationship with, with Homer, it sort of arrives at a place where I knew that, that sometimes you, you do just need to, to take that leap. And, and yes, it is a leap into the unknown and you don't know where or when you'll land, but you have to trust that, that, the good things will happen, you know, anything worth having is is something you have to, to take a little bit of a risk for. And so I called Lawrence and and told him how I felt, and, and he felt the same way. And uh, I was going to say, and then the rest is history, but of course there's several more chapters in the book wherein uh, Lawrence and the cats get used to each other, which is a whole, uh, whole separate story from Lawrence and me getting used to each other.
1: Yes. So... Tell us about, wasn't was there some, in the previous to the wedding, there was what the cats were doing, the cats were acting kind of...
2: Well, it was, we, uh, you know, when we first all moved in together, yes. uh, which was before we got married. Yes. It was definitely a period of adjustment. Lawrence had never lived with cats and did not think of himself as a cat person. And the cats were used to, you know, other people had come over and spend time in our apartment, but they they were used to living with just me. And uh, it was very. It was a very difficult transition at first. I think Scarlett just thought that that Lawrence was the newest and biggest cat to come into the house, <laughs> and Scarlett was of course in charge of all the cats, and and so she kept uh, trying to be in charge of Lawrence, and and the way that Scarlett likes to enforce discipline is to swipe at things with her claws, not not hard, trying to like, yes. d- but you know, just uh, hit them with her claws and let them know. And uh, Lawrence did not. Uh, you know, we moved into an apartments that Lawrence had lived in by himself for 20 years. So to have Lawrence basically being told where he could and could not go in his apartment, you know, Scarlett decided where her areas were. And if Lawrence was walking too close to her or too close to her favorite spots, and, and she would try to enforce discipline. And uh, that was interesting. And uh, and Homer was, uh, you know, Lawrence, my, my husband, has a, this wonderful boom, a great voice for radio, just this wonderful, booming, deep rich voice and uh, with a lot of force and and thrust behind it. And and I think, I always say Homer, I think, must have thought it was the booming voice of God uh, because it, it was a lot for him to take at first. It was the first time, you know, first time I ever saw him intimidated by anything. And it was really Vashti who saved the day because Vashti just fell in love with my husband and my husband fell in love with Vashti. And once that happened, it was a whole different relationship between him and the cats.
1: Gwen, it's a great story, and thanks so much for being with us. There's so much more, but we have run out of time. Uh,
2: it's quite all right. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I've been speaking with Gwen Cooper. She's the author of Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, published in paper by Bantam Books. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, GwenCooper.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. My name is
0: Michael Thompson. and you've been listening to New Dimensions.